Welcome to the AI Decision Guy podcast, the show where we explore the intriguing balance between artificial intelligence and human decision-making. I'm your host, Dr. Carlos Kemeny, and in each episode, we dive deep into the world of AI and its impact on various industries. Today, my guest is Justin Bedridge. After receiving a bachelor's degree in computer science with a linguistics minor from Brigham Young University, Justin went to Carnegie Mellon University, where he completed a master's degree in language technologies and pursued a doctoral degree in the same field. Before finishing, however, he left to start a company called Solvi, which provided conversational AI solutions for customer support automation. While Justin was chief technology officer at Solvi, the company was acquired by Zoom Video Communications in May 2022. Justin is currently an AI manager at Zoom, helping to lead their efforts in large language models, text summarization, and virtual agents. All right, I am here with one of my great friends from the Carnegie Mellon days. This is, I don't know how many years ago now, probably about 10, 12 years, but this is uh, Justin. Thanks, Justin, for being on the show. Um, you know, somebody that I've looked up to for a long, long time and uh, has been just a phenomenal friend. So, Justin, thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's fun. You know, I, I'm excited to have you on the show because it will be nice to have you share a little bit about the journey from the CMU days because that's when you founded Solvi. And so can you go a little bit through that history? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was at CMU uh, working on a PhD in language technologies, um, which is kind of the merging of uh, linguistics and computer science. So it's, a, it's called natural language processing is the, is the subfield of computer science. I, uh, from a mission that I searched my church, it was like I kind of developed a love for languages and I taught a lot of English when I was uh, in Mongolia for two years. So teaching grammar, I, I developed a love for geeking out on grammar and things like that and sentence structures and and uh, but of course loved computers and automation and so that's what led me to that field and that department that school has a really great uh department for language technologies called the language technologies institute so i was there for a number of years and uh and toward the end i was kind of getting you know to, not the end but uh i was getting more advanced in my uh working on my degree and a colleague of mine uh, proposed that we start a company together, and so we 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 did it the uh, wrong way, uh, the quote unquote wrong way, which is a hammer looking for a nail. It was like, hey, we've got uh, some experience and a little bit of knowledge in machine learning and artificial intelligence. There's got to be something we can commercialize, <laughs> and so we you know brainstormed for months and, and eventually um, and did a bunch of business plan competitions and. Uh, and uh, eventually settled on now looking back a too generic uh, a direction of solving problems. We'll help people solve their problems by getting information from the web. So we uh, basically question answering. And this was this was back in 2014 uh, is when we actually left our degrees. So we left CMU before even finishing, and uh, two PhD dropouts, and uh, and went to California to Silicon Valley to start our company uh, because we got we got an investor that was interested and willing to invest in us 
Um, and we were incredibly fortunate and, um, and that just kind of started the, started the journey, moved out to California and uh, eventually went into question answering for customer support and kind of built up the business around that. So this is fun because I think from a standpoint of having watched you go from that stage uh, all the way to now, uh, it's amazing to see the evolution of LLMs. I mean, everybody knows what that is to some degree at this point through OpenAI. Uh, but can you talk a little bit about the progression of the understanding from you know, the world on uh, AI and now how that's hit the masses? Um, and so you know, application-wise, what that means? Yeah, sure. And that's a, that's a great and very interesting question uh, because I feel like our generation is kind of uniquely positioned to see this transition, honestly, um, because I, you know, got my education in what now should be called machine learning 1.0 or AI 1.0, which was, or now it's probably classical machine learning, where you have uh, a bunch of training examples and you you know, either get labeled data somehow, and then you train a, a statistical or some other type of, of model to fit that data and and then make predictions uh, based on that data. So that's essential of the idea of machine learning and which is what we use for natural language processing. So to, to accomplish any kind of uh, language task, uh, even like machine automatic translation, speech recognition, um, search, question answering, entity extraction. There's just so many different automated tasks associated with language that all require a purpose-built machine learning model that was trained on data specific to that task. Well, then, I mean, and that's kind of where the field was at when we started um, Solvi. Actually, right when we started Solvi, 2013, 2014, 2012 is kind of where there was a, the first shift, and that was the shift from classical machine learning, like I was mentioning, where it, and the data sets for these tasks are on the order of anywhere from 100 to few thousand training examples, right? The more, the better. Um, but then 2012, 2014, you started to have a... a one area of machine learning that had always been there actually since the 60s, 1960s, 70s, is one of the earliest techniques called neural networks, artificial neural networks. Um, and and there, ever since then, you know, throughout the decades, there, there are various uh, researchers still working on um, neural networks. Um, some at BYU, where, where I got my undergrad in computer science, um, and, and they were kind of the, the dedicated faithful few because a lot of the government funding, which funds most of the academic research was not too hot or keen on neural networks. And so they kind of went through this dark, difficult period of still doing this research that they knew was, was promising that they were interested in, uh, without getting a lot of, of recognition funding for it. Um, but as computing power and data availability started to really increase in the early 2000s <clears throat> and cloud computing became a, a thing where you could just spin up servers you know and 
in addition, and also the, the advent of using GPUs, graph, graphical processing units, for doing mathematical, you know, matrix multiplications and, 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 and mathematical operations that require a high degree of, or that can support a high degree of parallelism. You could do thousands of these computations in parallel to multiply this matrix. Because of that, artificial neural networks became much more effective and promising. And, and so the scale, and, and, and before that, artificial neural network, ANN, we'll just call them um, neural networks, they were, uh, were still used. You, know, you, could use, you could use, there's like, I don't know, dozens of, of different machine learning techniques, techniques. And this was just one of the available techniques. You could train a neural network to do something like recognize digits, you know, handwriting recognition is sort of prototypical. And so they, um, but as they became more and more successful because you could have so much more compute, so much more data as well, like big data, the era of big data, we have all kinds of, you know, just terabytes and terabytes of text available to us. Uh, these approaches became the best. They started outperforming every other approach. Um, and, and these neural networks started to get bigger and bigger. So a neural network is, the, is an artificial representation of brain neurons. Um, it's to simulate, just like our, our brain cells, the neurons, how they work. Um, it's just kind of a, an artificial representation of that in the computer. And they, uh, they started to become way more, uh, uh, sorry, way bigger. And so that's what they, they were getting deeper. These networks are getting deeper. And so that's why this new kind of advent or this kind of, uh, well, it's not really, I don't know, let's call it a, a resurgence of uh, popularity in neural networks started to become deep learning. You've heard of deep learning. It's just the same artificial neural networks, but getting deeper, much bigger and deeper. And, and the, the bigger and deeper the network is, the more complexity it can represent. Um, just like you can imagine, um, you can represent all kinds of complexity if you have more degrees of, of, of dimensions where you can represent something. And, and so these, these networks that, that researchers were using to accomplish these tasks, like answering questions or parsing a sentence or um, all kinds of different tasks, uh, started to become more and more successful as they just added more and more data, more and more computing power. Um, and so that happened in about 2013, 2014. Now, when I started my company, it became like heads down, let's build this product and make it work. So we kind of stuck with classical machine learning for, for, for quite a while. Um, and we're just building product, you know, just getting market fit. We're getting customers, keeping them happy and, and uh, doing all that. And so we, I, I was just kind of like out of the, uh, the, the research community for a while. And, uh, but kind of observing from the side, how these deep learning was just becoming uh, just taking over. I mean, really deep learning just kind of took over every area of natural language processing. Well, one of the ways, so that was kind of the first revolution. It's called an AI revolution because really, really it has been. Um, and it's so much so that it became deep learning techniques now is kind of like your first thought for most machine learning tasks. It's, it's machine learning 2.0. It's not, it's, that's why there's classical machine learning and now modern machine learning, which is pretty much all deep learning. Well, one of the, um, 
one of the applications of deep neural networks to text is something called a language model. Uh, and a language model just simply memorizes sequences of words and how likely different sequences of words are based on a ton of data. And so um, if you have access to, say, the internet as a downloaded you know, set of text files that's like terabytes, uh, many terabytes large, and you have the computing power to kind of crunch through that and just kind of like memorize uh, you know, what words tend to come after other words, you can build up this incredible model of language that can predict um, the probability of a new word given some context of words. The, the amazing thing is that um, that's all it is. It's so simple, yet so powerful. It's so simple that it's literally just predicting the next most probable word given some context. But now that these deep learning models have been so become so big, they can represent a huge amount of content. And so, so, and as they became bigger and bigger, and they just gradually just got bigger and bigger, they, we started to call them large language models uh, to distinguish them from previous, because there's been language models that have been around and used in, in, that, in natural language processing, NLP, for a long time. They just haven't been very big. So now they're large language models. It's a very different beast. It, it's it's um, trained with the deep neural network. And um, and some people might have followed GPT-2 when that was announced. It wasn't released to the public, but it was it was teased to the public uh, and got some publicity and stuff. And then GPT-3 came out. And this company, OpenAI, that's produced those, um, you know, was, was, was started specifically to work on these um, deep learning and, and language models and they just um have really uh done a great job and and kind of and then chat gpt so right so then when chat gpt came out just a lot, just a few months ago right just back in november and it was so good it was just it's just so good at doing all kinds of things and yet it's at the at the core base of it it's literally just predicting the next most probable word um but that task has been transformed and used in so many new and different ways that now it's like it can become the brains for all kinds of higher level tasks um, and that's now the second revolution so now we're in the large language model era and we went from classical machine learning to deep learning everything and now large language models that are just unlocking a whole industry of new applications and jobs and possibilities that no one had really thought of before. I've appreciated you kind of going through for the audience that progression because you've been through those cycles. I think that you mentioned a word that I love in the decision-making uh, framework, which is uh, complexity. You know, you have these AI uh, models that are phenomenal in great complexity where we struggle when we have opportunity cost, we our brains naturally go through those top uh, options, right? And we then select. But when we have too many options as a human, we kind of we kind of lock up, 
right? And we, and we don't even make decisions in those moments. Whereas the model doesn't see that. The, the model has a great ease to score things and maybe it gets it wrong sometimes, but it does simplify quite a bit in milliseconds instead of what might take people weeks to think about and then they lose sleep over, right? Yeah. How do you think about this? You know, the AI model puts out something and it's easy and maybe it's not perfect, but, and maybe in many situations it can be very good, but the simplification of decision-making for people, um, how do you think about this across use cases? Uh, certainly it's situational, but how, how should an innovator, for example, think about uh, applying AI to simplify decision-making use case by use case? That's a great, that's a great question and very interesting to think about. I, I think the core thing to keep in mind is that there's no magic here. Like, where does this intelligence come from? It just comes from text on the internet. Um, and this thing is so good at memorizing texts from the internet and lots of other places. Um, and, and by the way, to, to be clear, they, you know, memorize a bunch of text from the internet, but then they put it through this training phase where they tell it, hey, you know, if I ask you to do this and you respond this way, that's good. You know, do it like that. Respond in a nice conversational manner. Or if I if I ask you to do something that's nefarious, uh, you know, don't do it. You know, so that it kind of, it, it goes through this training phase um, called fine tuning uh, or uh, instruction tuning where it is learned, you, tr you teach it to kind of, um follow instructions now by teaching it you're just updating its numbers its probabilities uh as to say well when the input is like this uh this type of word should be more probable than this type of word i mean that literally is what it is that is the intelligence it's just a huge amount of numbers so we really shouldn't like think that it has some real intelligence we, we shouldn't we shouldn't trust in it like uh, like it knows everything with perfect fidelity and accuracy. And it's a wonderful tool, but it really literally is just predicting the next word probabilistically given a whole bunch of previous words. And so it just does that really fast and really powerfully uh, with a whole bunch of context. Well, before. So it's able to say, well, if I have this document, this document, this document, and then you ask me this question, well, gosh, the most probable answer based on all these previous context tokens is this word, then this word, then this word, then this word. And so it's it's able to, yeah, it's able to answer questions. It's able to do a lot of things, but if you really play with them enough, you'll notice that it it can say something that's just flat out false or or silly or funny or if you game the system correctly, you can get it to say things that are offensive in a lot of ways. And so, uh, you know, people have, there's websites that will, where the people share, hey, I was able to game the system this way and, and jailbreak the, the, uh, the model to do what I want it to do, which is kind of, uh, not very, not very ethical or safe. Um, but it's, 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 it's able to do that just because it's just a tool, you know, it's just like a really fancy hammer. Uh, it, it's, it's not, it's not really a brain. It's not really an intelligence, uh, even though it acts very intelligent. Um, in the same way that, you know, self-driving car can act 
very intelligent, but you're not going to trust your self-driving car to make investment decisions for you. Yeah, I mean, it's it just because it exhibits intelligence doesn't mean it is a true intelligence and is capable of reasoning like we are. Uh, it, it's it's really only capable of 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 reasoning in the way that some text on the internet has reasoned, uh, and so it's. Yeah, it's, I, I'd leave it at that. It, it's it's really intel. It's it's it exhibits a lot of intelligent aspects, and it's really useful. It's it's inc- it's incredible. I'm honestly amazed, uh, even knowing all the details of how it's built. I'm amazed at what it's able to do. That I'm amazed that yeah, it's simply just probable. You know, the next most probable word is able to reason to such an extent. Um, and it's, it's impressive. It's, it's amazing, but there, there is a limit. We shouldn't go too far and think that this is going to give me every answer in a completely accurate way. Uh, we have to keep guardrails and that's, that's going to be the challenge of the next 10 years. So I agree. I think that, you know, you talk about this as a challenge, right? The challenge it's delineating, I think, if I can articulate what you said, it's, our, it's delineating what we should lean upon it for and what we shouldn't. And this actually is a very critical skill for the next generation, including our generations, right, where we have AI that we will depend on. And I think that in some ways we look at open AI and it's changed the nature of work. For example, summarization of SEO uh, uh, tasks or to write an email for a sales interaction. This is now embedded in those that are effective in doing work. And so that paradigm has sailed. You know, it's the point of no return. We talk about point of no return often, but that is a very technological advancement, uh, uh, useful term where we just don't go back to the way that it was before. The problem with decision-making in many ways, I think, is this dependency, the risk of dependency, which we're seeing already applied to task automation. But I'm actually more concerned about decision automation and outsourcing of decision making. So I'll use an example, and then I'd love for you to comment. But let's say that we automate the, the, the car. So now teenagers don't drive anymore, and they don't have any decision making skill that they're building. And that's a lot of complex decision making skill that you're giving a teenager. Now, not every teenager needs to drive to be able to gain great decision making skill. We have lots of examples in the world where this isn't the case. but for the average teenager, is it helpful or not? And how do you replace that? If you take a lot of these mini decisions, these skill building decision making for, let's say, a teenager who's developing their brain, how enabled or uh, disabled are they in being able to make bigger decisions? And I think Kissinger and Schmidt, they just wrote an opinion piece a couple of months ago in WSJ that I've advocated everyone read. Uh, and the reason why is because it talks about a rewiring of the brain that this delineation that you've alluded to here of what is something that could be useful for versus something that's not actually could even be even micro uh, 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 we can build a, a, a micro case for this which is even verifying information sentence by sentence that's being output by ai to ensure that it, what we're getting is truth and so if you could comment about this how does a person, how does a team, how does an organization, how does a society start gaining this validation and this observability skill towards these models that are outputting at bulk 
every second recommendations, uh, decision-making, uh, uh, automation, all of that. How do we, how, how do we operate? How do we go forward now? Yeah. Great. Great, great question. Uh, just a couple of things. When you first talked about, you know, the self-driving car and as we, as we use those more, um, and will teenagers, you know, miss out on those opportunities to learn how to make decisions. Uh, what went through my mind was the the movie Wall E, uh, if, uh, because I you know, I see a lot of animated movies. I've got kids, and I remember that one. And it's just so funny. The humans, you know, they they launch themselves into space because Earth had become un uninhabitable, and over time they had this intelligent ship that did everything for them, and they ended up just riding around on little pods, slurping their smoothie that had all their nutrition. And after, you know, for years of doing that, their bones started to separate. They became really weak, so they couldn't even walk around. Um, and it was just, it's funny how uh, that's, that's making a statement. You know, if you automate too much, it's going to have an effect on you. It's like you can't, uh, you can't get away from the effect that it's, that automation is having on those that are doing, you know, making use of it. And of course, Historians will talk to us for hours about uh, how technology has changed our lives and affected humans, and that's part of the advancement of civilization. Um, but we should go into it open-eyed. You know, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't just blindly try to automate everything we possibly can and not even think about the, the ramifications. Because it's a good point. I mean, like, what do you learn in, when you're in high school writing an essay? You know, writing your first essays in your English class. How much do you learn about formulating words, like taking a thought and figuring out the right way to say that? I mean, how many times have we grappled with that? And it's kind of it's an art form. Some people love to do this, to like formulate words and, and create language. And that is their craft. Right. I, I love words. I love language. I love articulating things. That's um, it's not I wouldn't call that my craft, but it's something that I enjoy doing. and. And now I'm just going to let a computer do that for me. You know, uh, I, I think there's going to be certainly some, um, you know, there's going to be, there's been computer generated music for a while, but is it mainstream? You know, not really. Uh, now we have computer generated art, you know, AI generated art, visual art. We're going to have computer generated text, obviously everywhere, but I think we're just going to have to learn to use it like any other new technology. Okay, um, it's useful here. It's 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 automating this mundane task that makes my life better. So it's, I think it's really that comes down to is this making your life better? Um, and maybe by making your life better, it's making someone else's life worse. So we have to think about that. Are we displacing jobs? Um, and if we're doing that, we need to find better ways to employ or educate uh people to so that all boats rise with the, with the tide uh but i don't know that, that's that's an excellent question we, we can't get away from from i mean in my opinion this is just my opinion is that we we should make sure we keep training ourselves and, and, all, and future generations to do these things like formulate words and language and and speak and communicate effectively um, and and make sure we 
keep those training processes in place and not and not let them shortcut or or get around those exercises that we know will build those skills that are important for healthy and productive life. Yeah, and I think that the, the application for a technologist. I mean, you've led technology technology now for for many years, but you know, in technology, we have a sandbox and move it to dev and move it to prod, right? In data pipelines, similar, there's auditing, there's observability, there's exception-based reporting when something goes wrong, right? So we have monitoring. Should the same happen for decision-making? And the data that you're talking about with these LLMs, uh, maybe let's talk about that for a couple minutes here. Uh, You know, how do we observe and how do we create effective feedback loops to make, and I think the key word here is deliberate decisions around how we live and coexist with AI. And I think the difference from every technology before to now is a lot of technology that has advanced us is actually more around automation. Mm-hmm. That automation piece of making work easier has been the name of the game for most things up until this point in time. AI is different because decision-making is the focal point. The automation of the decision is how humans progress. That is the, that is the currency by which we grow. Uh, you, we purchase uh, uh, with our own decisions and the accountability of our decisions our growth. And so if you remove that with now the automation or outsourcing of decision-making, you cannot grow. That is a pretty bold statement. That's a, that's my statement, but I believe that firmly. I have conviction around that. And so the question then is, if we now coexist with AI to grow and we need to make deliberate decisions to not let everything be outsourced so that we can continue to have human progression, then how do we create observability that signals a red flag when maybe the data is off. Maybe, you know, we've been trusting it 99% of the time or hundred percent of the time, but there's this one statement, you know, misinformation, or maybe the, and we talk about maybe corrupting the data. You know, if I'm, we'll talk about nefarious purposes. If I want to corrupt a large language model, maybe it's not throwing up a website with a bunch of garbage. Maybe it's just infiltrating a lot of mainstream data with inaccurate statements over and over again, right? And so now there's this challenge that society has to flag. And that's a very challenging situation, which we've seen over the last few years play out. So, you know, how do we do this? How do we move into this world technologically in which we create effective monitoring, effective observability, and that this is, you know, I I hate the word democratized because it's overused and obviously misapplied many times, but in many ways, this is a democratized requirement for coexisting with AI. Would you agree with that statement? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, um, one thing I wanted to mention, like, I think the key with how do you monitor, how do you alert, how do you keep those guardrails, um, and it's already starting to happen, is you use this technology against itself. So you can train a separate model to look at the output of another language model and say and ask, Hey, is this accurate? Now, based on, yeah, because again, it's it's it was just probabilistically generated, just statistics, just saying look, whatever is most probable, there it is. Well, you know, you roll a dice, you flip a coin, you're going to get different results each time. That's probability, and so you could say, hey, regenerate that. I don't know if I like that. Okay, here's another one, um, and 
and you can have a separate model that that is kind of the good cop bad cop it's the one kind of looking and saying uh no that that's that's not quite right um let's let's try this again or let's 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 dig into this further you know okay let's you you generated this paragraph i don't like this one sentence you know generate me another sentence or i and this is what you know people are starting to do all the time now is is kind of have another language model review the output of one language model and um and and review revise it right so asking for revisions um but i think if if you ask me to kind of step out on a limb and make a prediction i i think that going forward we're going to we're going to see a lot more um predictive assistance from ai in predicting the future right we have weather forecasting right these weather forecast models I don't know much about, but I'm sure they're based on a ton of of data and you know bigger and bigger computational models, right? That you can now, I mean, it's it's getting pretty accurate, right? The way they can predict the weather, the exact minute that the rain's going to stop, you know. Um, how do we apply that kind of predictive intelligence to other areas of life? Um, and I, I can imagine something where a large language model is suggesting some uh, course of action, and you you have a different model that's predictive that's trained to kind of say, well, based on all the events I've seen in the past, you know, is this suggestion likely to pan out? Yes or no? So that kind of when you make a decision, it's like nobody knows the future with certainty, right? But you know more when you have more data at your fingertips, right? So that's where these things really shine is by making use of an insane amount of data that no human could ever have in their brain at one time. Um, and so I think as we go forward in the future, we should try to use them in those, in those ways to say, Hey, how can I bring, how can I how can I get this language model to leverage a bunch of historical data that I know is probably out there to help me make this decision and, and use it that way. Yeah, no. And I think maybe as a final topic for our discussion, you know, I, I like to end usually on trust, data trust. You know, I'll use the example of a CEO maybe that leans over even with a bunch of dashboards from millions of dollars of investment in data and just asks the CFO, what do you think? And that phenomena, which is a lack of data trust from a dashboard and now just trusting the person who you trust the most and who has the most accountability becomes the you know, the, the chief uh, decision-making framework is an interesting one with this because clearly in decision-making, there's sometimes that it works for you, sometimes it goes against you. And so when data is not trusted or the outcome, unfortunately, even if the data is good, is not what people expected or is subpar, even though it's funny how the world works where you make a decision, there's no linearity within, you know, uh, you know, very complex decision making that that decision then results. It's that there's a lot of work after the fact. Every founder in the world knows this. The decision is a small part of the bigger success, right? And so, I think that in this world of data trust, though, where you have large data and you have lots of opportunity for data integrity issues uh to exist how does trust 
play into this? How do you mitigate these trust issues? What are the things that every company that's working on data models should be thinking if they're trying to automate and then influence decision-making, what should they be doing right now to build better trust in their data? That's a, that's a great question. I think um, if, if we're talking about large language models also in the, in the, in the, in the discussion, the, I think also a, a, a emerging area of, of technique currently, and it's just going to get you know more and more uh, commonplace. Is how do you um, inject external data that is not in the text from the internet, right? Some database from your company that's proprietary, you only you have access to. It's not on the internet. It's not part of the large language model. It doesn't know about it out of the box. But you want it to use that data to give you some output, help you do something, maybe help you make a decision, right? It's kind of, you want it to use its kind of general intelligence from text from the internet, uh, plus this data to do something. And so that's, that's going to continue to become, I think, a, a key aspect, a key way that we use this new tool. Um, but then it opens up this question of, well, can I use it to help me with my trust of my of this data, either my data or someone else's data? Can I use a large language model to kind of like not revise but audit or um, or or kind of look for anomalies or look for patterns? And yes, like this is what computers are best for. It's just crunching through a ton of data. And if you can combine that capability with this general intelligence from the internet, where it kind of knows what makes a good pattern, what makes a bad pattern, what's an, what should be an anomaly, what should not be an anomaly, like, if you kind of use it, that's going to be an exciting application and, and really help us with the data trust. Because the problem with data trust is like, if you were able to go look at every single data point yourself and see the complete context of every single data point, yeah, you'd be an expert and you'd be able to make decisions with confidence and with ease. It's, our uncomfortableness comes because we're not able to look at every single data point. And therefore, we have to ask ourselves, how much do I trust this data? But if you can be armed with this tool, magical goggles, think of it like they can like look through the whole data set and then they answer that question, we might get to a lot higher level of trust and confidence uh, with our data. Uh, by doing that. I'm just spitballing here. I mean, I don't know if this is going to happen, but it seems like that would be a useful way uh, to improve our lives and improve our trust with data using the tools available. Thanks, Justin. This has been a great conversation. I mean, clearly it's uh, wonderful to go through the LLM and, and how this influences the landscape. Um, again, you know, we we're so much more aware. It's amazing how OpenAI opened that floodgate of awareness through a customer-facing application. But I have really appreciated digging into some of these bigger questions and digging into the decision-making, the effects of, uh, on decision-making of these models and some of the things we need to do technologically to button it up. Um, it's been a great conversation. Justin, thank you yeah. for joining today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. I love talking about this stuff. Thank you for joining us on the AI Decision Guy podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure to tune in to our future episodes 
as we continue to explore the ever-evolving landscape of AI and its impact on decision-making. Until next time.